Hello everybody, I'm glad to be back for the first episode of 2019. I've missed the podcast, I look forward to more placing newspaper headlines and world events into their true context with all the connections to other areas of society. 2019 could be a big year for the podcast, so let's get on with it. Hello and welcome to episode 47 of Pay-Per-View, where I review the papers and big headlines of the week and place events and headlines in their true context in a weekly podcast. And the first subject this week is Europe. This is in the sun. France and Germany plot to merge borders, economies and defence policies in latest step towards EU superstate. France and Germany plotting to merge borders, economies and defence policies in latest step towards an EU superstate. The neighbouring countries are to forge together policies in areas including terrorism, in other words, installing more surveillance and control in society under the guise of protecting from terrorism, and transport in an unprecedented twinning pact just two months before the UK is due to leave Europe. In line with the agreement, regions on either side of the Franco-German border will be encouraged to form Euro districts, the Times reports. I'm going to read the Times article after this one. Germany's Chancellor Angela Merkel is due to meet with French President Emmanuel Macron on January 22nd in Aachen, a town symbolic for its common history as well as location on the border. The treaty extension negotiated over the past year, though short on details, stipulates that it will be a priority of German-French diplomacy for Germany to be accepted as a permanent member of the United Nations Security Council. Under the plans, ministers will also be able to sit in on each other's cabinet meetings. There are also aims to promote closer cooperation between national intelligence services and police in fighting terrorism and organised crime, as well as a commitment to moving towards economic convergence. Other areas of cooperation include culture, health, innovation and transport. In Paris, Macron's office said the Elysee Treaty extension would help both European powers tackle the challenges they will be confronted with in the 21st century. We envisage deepening our engagement in favour of security and prosperity of our peoples in the framework of a more sovereign, united and democratic Europe, it said. The two governments will agree to hold regular consultations on all levels before major European meetings and take care to establish common positions and issue joint statements. It adds they will stand up for a strong and effective common foreign and defence policy and strengthen and deepen the economic and currency union. But critics say the treaty will be a juggernaut capable of crushing dissent beneath its wheels, the Times reports. Germany's appointment to the Security Council could cause some issues in Brussels where it is felt that it should be awarded to the EU. The treaty will also face considerable opposition by parties on the far left and right. Alexander Gorlin, leader of the far-right alternative for Germany party, has described it as an erosion of our national sovereignty. Well, I've said before that the idea is to erode national sovereignty, to break down resistance to a foreign ruling body, which is what the European Union is, and I'll be explaining the bigger picture of that after I've read the two articles. While in France, Marine Le Pen, formerly of the far-right National Front, described it as an unbalanced diktat from Germany. And here's the article in the Times I mentioned just now. Paris and Berlin herald new era of integration. France and Germany are to forge shared defence, foreign and economic policies in an unprecedented twinning pact regarded as a prototype for the future of the European Union. Angela Merkel and President Macron will sign a treaty this month to open the way for their neighbours to present a united diplomatic front and act jointly in peacekeeping missions. 
regions on either side of the Franco-German border will be encouraged to form Euro districts with merged water, electricity and public transport networks. Berlin and Paris will offer cash to incentivize these cross-border areas, which can involve shared hospitals, joint business schemes or environmental projects. That will include climate change, no doubt. Some officials regard these experiments as a petri dish for the integration of the European Union. Both countries will lobby for Germany to receive a permanent seat on the United Nations Security Council alongside France, the US, China, Russia and Britain, the victorious allies at the end of the Second World War. Well, that's not why Britain is on the United Nations Security Council. Ultimately, it's because of Britain's importance to the elite and their agenda and their prominence especially with the city of london not the whole city but the financial district and the law system and the relevance of that in that city of london to the secret society network and the role that plays in global manipulation not everybody in secret societies obviously but not real higher levels and the elite levels I described the structure of global control in episode 24. So that's the real reason Britain is on the United Nations Security Council permanently. France and Germany also intend to speak with one voice in Brussels, drawing up common positions before pivotal European Union summits in an effort to make the bloc a more decisive power on the world stage. The treaty is designed to signal that France and Germany will uphold the values of multilateralism at a time when the global liberal order is under threat. Both President Macron and Mrs Merkel have expressed frustration at the rise of populism and nationalism. Well, yeah, because they are elite front people and populism. While not every populist candidate is what people would want them to be and see them to be, populism is a response by the people who are sick and tired of being ignored, as they have been for so long, and a response politically to get candidates into power who they believe will address their concerns. It's a more people-focused politics. Doesn't mean that that is guaranteed to play out, but that's what populism is. Both President Macron and Mrs Merkel have expressed frustration at the rise of populism and nationalism, in other words, a sense of national identity, which mass migration is destroying. And of course, Angela Merkel has massively played a role in that in Germany and uh, the effect that's had beyond Germany. The article goes on, and at Europe's dithering in the face of problems such as climate change, what did I say just now? And mass migration, what did I say just now? I talk about climate change in episodes 18 and 29. I talk about migration in episode 23. And actually in that episode, I talk about how migration plays into the European Union agenda. And I talk about the relevance to Europe of migration in episode 21 as well. On New Year's Eve, Mrs Merkel declared that Germany would stand up and fight for multilateralism. And multilateralism is an alliance of multiple countries pursuing a common goal. Well, they are pursuing a common goal. The elite's agenda and was ready to assume more responsibility in the world. A year ago, diplomats from the countries began negotiating an agreement in the spirit of the 1963 Elysee Treaty that formally set aside centuries of mutual hostility and set up the Franco-German alliance that has dominated the European project since. The brief document will be signed on January 22nd in Aachen, the ancient German spa city near the borders with Belgium and the Netherlands. It is meant to be ratified by the two national parliaments that same day. 
the location is heavy with symbolism. Aachen, known as Aix-la-Chapelle in French, was the Frankish imperial capital under Charlemagne and has passed back and forth between Germany and France several times. Leaked extracts from the new Aachen Treaty describe harmonization of business regulations and coordination of economic policy between the states guided by a joint council of experts. The text bears the imprint of Mr. Macron's desire to use Franco-German consensus to rally the EU into becoming more assertive as a global power. The two governments will agree to hold regular consultations on all levels before major European meetings and take care to establish common positions and issue joint statements. It adds they will stand up for a strong and effective common foreign and defence policy and strengthen and deepen the economic and currency union. It lays the groundwork for a Franco-German Defence and Security Council that would act as a political steering group, with each side influencing the other's decisions. Berlin and Paris will also frequently exchange diplomats and civil servants. Ministers from one country will regularly sit in on the other's cabinet meetings. On the military front, the treaty enshrines an ambition to form a common culture and common deployments overseas. A possible template for this arrangement is the 15,000-strong UN peacekeeping force in Mali, a former French colony that was partly overrun by rebellious Touareg tribes and Islamist groups linked to Al-Qaeda in early 2012. While France bore the brunt of the fighting, the German armed forces have since supplied one of the largest non-African contingents and some 370 German troops remain there today. Diplomats from some other EU member states view the Aachen Treaty with suspicion. There are concerns that the ever closer union between the bloc's two most powerful economies could create a juggernaut capable of crushing dissent beneath its wheels. Well, that's the idea. The goal of Berlin winning a permanent place on the UN Security Council is also likely to irk some in Brussels who feel that it should be awarded to the EU. After Brexit, only one of the five main seats will be held by an EU member if Brexit happens. Germany, which began a two-year stint on the council at the start of this month, is already guaranteed a seat roughly every eight years on account of its economic and geopolitical clout. The treaty is also likely to run into considerable domestic opposition in both countries. Although the project enjoys support from across the political centre and is vigorously contested by parties on the fringes of left and right, Alexander Gorlin, leader of the far-right alternative for Germany party, has described it as an erosion of our national sovereignty. Well, that's always to be welcomed by those who are pushing the agenda. And in France, Marine Le Pen, figurehead of the National Rally Party, formerly the far-right National Front, said it was an unbalanced diktat from Germany. Well, whenever you hear about closer cooperation or closer coordination or a common policy, as is mentioned in this article, what that means is common control. It's about control. It's about a structure through which control and manipulation can be most easily administered. That's what cooperation means. That's what harmonization of policy means. It means the elite's agenda being equally dictated. Macron and Merkel did not originate this idea. This has been on the agenda all along. Macron and Merkel are just front people fronting up the agenda. Macron used to be a banker for the Rothschilds. Some people would say he still is. The more countries you can group together, the easier it is for a central point to dictate to those countries, the megastates. Every megastate will specialise in a different area of society and this creates the interdependence so necessary for control because if a country is independent, it therefore obviously doesn't need to rely on another country or foreign governing body like the EU for what it needs. This is why a major goal of the agenda is to create interdependence because interdependence means control. If you control all the megastates through the unions and everyone's reliant on your world government as is planned, 
the world government would dictate to the unions, which would dictate to the mega states and the regionalized countries. Because as I've said before, the agenda is to break countries up into mega regions to make them easier to control. This is the smart city transhuman agenda I talk about considerably in episode 11. The goal of this agenda is to constantly bring power into the hands of the few. So at one time we had countries, then we had unions like the EU, also the African Union evolved out of the Organization of African Unity. The EU was sold as just a free trade zone when it was always known where it was going to end. And we've not yet seen where it's meant to end, we've just seen where it is now. Then the idea is to group countries together as megastates dictated to by the unions, which themselves will be dictated to by the final stage of this process, which is the world government. It's interesting that a common culture is talked about because that plays into the migration agenda. They want an end to individual culture. They want an end to anything that makes a national identity what it is in any country. They want a blob culture and people say well how can you do that because loads of people still have a sense of culture but we're not talking next week this is going to play out or is planned to play out this is a long-term goal and i talk in the previous episode about the erosion of culture and how that's playing out in various ways and the rewriting of history the idea that macron and merkel have just thought of this is ludicrous as i've been saying for 11 years now long before pay-per-view of course political leaders and certain politicians like certain members of parliament or it's like in different countries are just there to articulate the agenda they're just a vessel for the agenda a public face for the agenda some will be manipulated into doing that many won't know about the agenda in the first place they will either call for an aspect of the agenda because they think it's the best thing without even knowing about the agenda some of them We'll just be in politics totally ignorant. And there's nothing more manipulatable than genuineness that is not aware. That's easy to manipulate that. There will be those who are blackmailed. Only a tiny few in comparison with the rest. There will be those who have their own self-interests. A lot of them, if not the vast majority. And there will be those who are knowingly calling for the agenda. And aware of the agenda. And they will again be only a certain number. But Macron and Merkel are in the latter category, certainly. As I said, Macron used to work for the Rothschilds. He still does. Any political leader does. Whether they know it or not is a different story. But they're just a vessel for the agenda, a public face for the agenda, that's all. The agenda was drawn up in the unseen many generations ago, much longer than most people would even believe. So it needs a public face and front to sell the hopes of world and society changing events and introductions being random and spontaneous. Oh, I've just had an idea. Oh, we've had a meeting and we sat down and we thought this was the best thing to do. Instead of being coldly calculated and long planned. And when I say coldly, I mean... The depth of coldness would make a freezer seem warm. And it's long planned and it's aligned with the elite's agenda. Not everything, of course not, but the overall direction of society and individual countries and their policy. In other words, as I keep saying, society is agenda-driven, not people-driven.
And the next subject this week is toxic masculinity. This is in the Daily Mail. Toxic masculinity is harming boys by encouraging them not to cry, say top psychologists. Traditional masculinity is toxic and encouraging boys not to cry is dangerous to their health according to the world's leading psychology group. In its first official guidelines on the treatment of men and boys, the influential American Psychological Association says many male traits including stoicism, competitiveness, dominance and aggression are harmful and can lead to violence, depression and suicide. Well, stoicism, in other words, endurance, not giving in, and competitiveness can be channeled in a positive way. Being an over-competitive person in life in general can manifest negatively, but competitiveness and stoicism can be positive qualities as well. I talk in episode 37 about an initiative for silent football matches for young kids playing football. The idea being that it puts less pressure on the kids. And I talked in the episode about why I think the idea is ridiculous. Anyway, the article goes on. The guidelines argue that this traditional masculinity ideology, it's an ideology now, see? You can't just be masculine, it's an ideology, pushes boys towards anti-femininity and forces them to mask the appearance of weakness while encouraging risk-taking, aggression and violence as a means of solving problems. Well, again, risk-taking can be a positive trait in the right circumstances. But you see, if you can start kids early on this toxic masculinity, ideology you can give kids the idea that qualities like competitiveness stoicism and risk-taking can be harmful personality traits then not all of them of course but some of them there's a great chance they'll take that with them through life and what the elite and authority don't want is people who want to take risks in society not least because they're more difficult to predict and they're willing to do things that we're told we should not do or say. It's the last thing they want. Anyway, the article goes on. As a result, it limits men's psychological development, constrains their behavior. What did I just say? Constrains their behavior. That's exactly what they want. Causes gender role strain. That's a new phrase they've come up with. And has a negative impact on their mental and physical health. But critics have accused the report of taking an anti-male stance which depicts traditional male values as nearly monstrous. The report paints a picture of generations of boys under constant pressure by society to conform to masculine expressions who were censured, as in C-E-N-S-U-R-E-D, which means someone's expressing disapproval, who are censured by their parents and peers if they fail to maintain the expected behaviour. Well, that's a fair point. Yeah, parents and peers should have respect for their kids and other peers, of course. But respect is a, but respect is a two-way street, however. But respect is a two-way street, though. If we're to hold men to account because of extreme masculine behaviour, what about women? Women who are aggressive and violent? Women who commit domestic violence? Some people would say about the men in those situations... You need to be more masculine to not get beaten up. But not all men are built physically the same. I know, as a biological fact, men are stronger, but not all men are the same. Not all men want to fight back. Not all men want to fight back just out of respect for the woman, because it's a woman. Or because of their emotional attachment to the woman. Although, my emotional attachment would be gone instantly if I had a partner and they started 
being violent, I have to say, but everyone's different and respect goes both ways. It's not only men who can be overly masculine. Women can also display masculine traits and should be held to account as well if we're going to hold men to account. Its authors say transgender issues are at the forefront of the cultural conversations with evidence suggesting a link between adherence to rigid masculinity in gay, bisexual and transgender men and higher rates of self-destructive behaviour such as drug taking. The APA is regarded as a leading authority on psychological matters. Its manual of mental disorders is taken as the bible of mental illness and consulted by British psychologists and health experts. While the controversial guidance was years in the making, its publication in the wake of the Me Too movement, fraudulent Me Too movement, as I've talked about before in episode 27. While the controversial guidance was years in the making, its publication in the wake of the Me Too movement against sexual harassment and sexual assault feeds a prevailing narrative about the dangers of traditional masculinity. Critics last night accused the authors of anti-male rhetoric. Frank Faridi, emeritus professor of sociology at Kent University, said suddenly the reluctance of some men to crown a man is recast as pathology. This is not a scientifically informed document. It is an ideologically driven attempt to devalue male identity. That's exactly what it is. Professor Chris Ferguson, a fellow of the APA, complained that the guidance read like an activist's agenda, saying in sweeping terms, traditional men are portrayed as nearly monstrous, their cultural values associated with everything from sexism to promiscuity to their own declining health. But psychologist Ryan McDermott, who helped draft the report, said the profession needed to help men break free of masculinity rules that don't help them and focus on potentially positive aspects of masculinity such as courage and leadership. And Dr. Glenn Wilson, a British psychologist and author of The Great Sex Divide, said male-female differences are not socially constructed, they have early evolutionary origins. Male and female typical traits are both advantages and disadvantages. For example, psychopathy increases the likelihood of crime but is useful in battle. That's a very good point. I mean, what about if, in the days of cavemen, when the men were the hunter-gatherers, what about if then there was talk of toxic masculinity and men were told to stop being hunter-gatherers and told to stop being traditional men? What would the impact of that have been? There was an evolutionary survival reason why men were the traditional classic caveman male at that time and as Dr Glenn Wilson says male female differences are not socially constructed they have early evolutionary origins there was a reason for it there's another section here which is to do with transgender but it's worth reading anyway a top university has dropped students initials and email addresses because they could be problematic for transgender people who change their names this is more madness a spokesman at Bristol University explained John Smith arriving in 2018 might have received the username JS18123. In the new scheme, it will start with any two letters except JS. I mean, if transgender people are going to be offended by having two initials, two letters at the start of a username, then they really do need to see someone. Because that is a state of insanity. The only way to deal with it is not to pander to them, but for them to see someone, a psychologist, someone who can help them get over their stupidity. The latest move in the higher education system to satisfy transgender rights advocates follows the installation of gender-neutral toilets and advice to check the preferred pronoun of students. Professor Alan Smithers of Buckingham University branded the move an absurd overreaction. Exactly what it is. But Bristol University said concerns have been expressed by transgender staff and students who may have transitioned that their login remains linked to their former identity. It's two letters, for goodness sake. It's not even a name. 
There's another article here in The Independent from November 2018. Toxic masculinity leaves most young men feeling pressure to man up. More than half, 61% of Britain's young men feel pressure to man up as a result of a damaging gender stereotype. New research from YouGov reveals. According to the findings, 67% of 18 to 24-year-olds felt compelled to display hypermasculine behaviour in tough situations. And 55% said crying in front of others would make them feel like less of a man. The survey named Future Men sheds light on the prevalence of archaic attitudes towards male identity and also revealed that very few people associate masculinity with positive traits. For example, just 1% of the 2058 adults surveyed associated the term with honesty and only 3% associated it with kindness. One of the most dated stereotypes surrounding men and women is that the latter are more emotional while the former are stoic. But even this was found to be a prevalent attitude among those surveyed, with 53% of young men saying they feel like society expects them to never ask for emotional support. To be masculine is often associated with being boorish, aggressive, inconsiderate and sometimes violent, says Christopher Mwanguzi, CEO of Working With Men, the charity who commissioned the survey for International Men's Day. Mwanguzi tells The Independent that these links are instilled from a young age. We see it as early as the toddler years, when a boy who falls down is told not to cry and to be a man versus the girl that is comforted. He went on to explain how important it is to tackle these attitudes if we're to address some of the worrying statistics surrounding men, such as suicide being the biggest killer of men under 45. Men are often expected to man up when faced with challenges, even when tackling serious mental health issues or complex problems. This means that many of them will not ask for help early enough, reinforcing the tradition of men asking for help when it's often too late. He added that a call to action is needed now more than ever, particularly one year on from Me Too, the global movement encouraging victims of sexual assault and harassment to speak out. By helping young men and boys understand that they don't have to conform to archaic aggressive stereotypes of masculinity, we hope to reduce antisocial behaviour, mental health struggles, suicide, gender-based crime and domestic violence. Well, there's a little rule of thumb when it comes to the elite's agenda. And that is, when something comes out of nowhere, and is suddenly everywhere, it's the agenda, almost every time, if not every time. And this whole thing about toxic masculinity is an example of that. So is the massive explosion of people identifying with transgender and gender fluid, and transgender and gender fluid propaganda. Now, this thing about toxic masculinity is not about the overbearing, dominant, aggressive aspects of extreme masculinity. That's not what they want to breed out of men. They want to breed stoicism, in other words, endurance, not giving in. And they want to breed out the not taking any crap response out of men. That's what it's about. The extreme masculinity is just a foot in the door. Just like supporting people who feel they're in the wrong body is the foot in the door for the transgender and fluid gender agenda to explode and be everywhere. You've got to sell it to people, and the foot in the door is the sales pitch. Of course, there's nothing wrong with men being more emotion, but that's just the foot in the door. That's not what really this whole toxic masculinity focus is about. There is a war on the male, the white male in particular, and it goes beyond just masculinity. Testosterone levels are falling. Researchers found that in less than 40 years, sperm counts have more than halved The study analysed men unselected by fertility from North America, Europe, Australia and New Zealand. And when you look at what could be the causes of it, I mean, they're all around us. You've got mobile phones in trouser jean pockets and the radiation that they're receiving all the time in the form of wireless communication. Laptops on the lap, which is where you'd think would be the perfect place for them. 
except for the fact that they're also receiving radiation all the time as well. I talk about that in episode 44, part 2. Another technological radiation, smart meters, smartphones, etc. All around us, environmental toxins like pesticides and toxins in food and drink, and EDCs, endocrine disrupting chemicals. I talk about them in episode 3. They're on teal receipts. That's one of the major sources of EDC exposure. Atrazine, or atrazine, a commonly used pesticide, is leading to chemical castration and feminization of male frogs. And in episode 8, I talk about the effect of chemicals on fertility. Dr. Melody Milam Potter, a clinical health psychologist for nearly 30 years who pursued 13 years in nursing, says, Synthetic chemicals can create these silent switches in nature's plan. EDCs we encounter every day can alter the sex hormone balance, preventing male genitals from growing properly. By suppressing testosterone and by enhancing or mimicking the female sex hormone estrogen, they can undermine the natural testosterone messages surging through a growing fetus. For instance, estrogen mimics like dioxin, a widespread pollutant and potent endocrine disruptor, can intercept and overcome a hormonal message from a male gene. Dioxin also acts as a testosterone flusher, reducing male hormone concentration so much that the male action may not be stimulated adequately. Testosterone suppressors like DDT can block testosterone's position on a receptor. Hormone stimulators can intensify the action of a natural hormone so much that the system shuts down and refuses to receive a male go-ahead signal. In fact, research substantiates that exposure to EDCs at a crucial time can disrupt the entire genital sequence. Even a single tiny dose of dioxin fed to lab rats during genital differentiation disrupts sexual development in the male babies. But the effects are not limited to rats. We occasionally see examples in humans in real life. Now, people will just have to make of that what they will. But that's what a clinical health psychologist for nearly 30 years, who pursued 13 years in nursing, a doctor, says. For seven years after a chemical explosion in Cerveso in Italy in 1976, more girls were born than would be expected. And there's an article here from The Telegraph in 2016, March 2016. Homosexuality may be triggered by environment after birth. Homosexuality may be triggered by environmental factors during childhood after scientists found that genetic changes which happen after birth can determine whether a man is straight or gay. The finding is highly controversial. Well, anything that well, anything that reveals the truth is often highly controversial. The finding is highly controversial because it suggests that some men are not born gay but are turned homosexual by their surroundings. It also raises privacy concerns that medical records could reveal sexuality. Well, in episode 3, I talk about the changing of gender due to chemical influence. The article goes on. The new research by the University of California has not yet been published, but is being presented at an annual meeting of the American Society of Human Genetics in Baltimore. Scientists studied 37 sets of identical male twins who were born with the same genetic blueprint to tease out which genes were associated with homosexuality. In each pair, one of the twins was gay. Only 20% of identical twins are both gay, leading researchers to believe that there must be causes which are not inherited. They found that it was possible to tell whether a man was gay or straight by monitoring tiny changes in how DNA functions after birth, a field known as epigenetics. I've talked about that before. Where DNA works as an overall instruction manual, epigenetics act as another layer of information highlighting which parts of the text are important and which can be ignored. 
Epigenetic changes are known to be triggered by environmental factors such as chemical exposure, childhood abuse, diet, exercise and stress. Researchers identified nine areas in the genome where genes function differently when a twin was homosexual. And the scientists say that they can predict with 70% accuracy whether a man is gay or straight simply by looking at those parts of the genome. To our knowledge, this is the first example of a predictive model for sexual orientation based on molecular markers, said lead author Dr. Tuck Ngun. Sexual attraction is such a fundamental part of life, but it's not something we know a lot about at the genetic and molecular level. I hope that this research helps us understand ourselves better and why we are the way we are. British scientists said the work was intriguing but should be treated with caution until the scientific paper was published. Professor Tim Spector, Professor of Genetic Epidemiology, King's College London, said it has always been a mystery why identical twins who share all their genes can vary in homosexuality. Epigenetic differences are one obvious reason and this study provides evidence for this. However, the small study needs replicating before any talk of prediction is realistic. Professor Darren Griffin, Professor of Genetics, University of Kent, added, While there is strong evidence in general for a biological basis for homosexuality, my personal impression has always been one of multiple contributory factors, including life experiences. My gut feeling is that as the complete story unfolds, the association may not be quite as simple as suggested. To claim a 70% predictive value of something as complex as homosexuality is bold indeed. I wait with bated breath for a full peer-reviewed article. The US researchers are now planning to try out their genetic test on a larger population of men. They have not yet carried out any work on women. Dr. Eric Misker, Herschel Smith Chair of Molecular Genetics at the University of Cambridge, said epigenetic marks are the consequence of complex interactions between the genetics development and environment of an individual. Like I said, I talked more about this in episode 3. Testosterone levels falling also obviously impacts on personality. There's the obvious effect of testosterone on emotional responses with extreme masculinity. I've said before, as I've said before, the body is a computer and... DNA is the hard drive of the body computer, and as such, if you activate certain genetic functions, you activate how the computer processes information, and this can affect the way people think and feel. Environmental influences can trigger this process. This is how epigenetics works. Environmental influences changing DNA and thus the processing of information by the body, but epigenetics also impacts on the next generation. So, for example, the first generation in this example sequence becomes generation snowflake and then the following generation is born generation snowflake so in terms of the subject of gender and toxic masculinity the first generation becomes less masculine or gender fluid and the following generation is born less masculine or gender fluid more naturally aligned with that and so as time goes by you've got less and less definitive gender and this of course plays into the agenda to merge and eventually end gender Because if you want, as the elite do, to bring about a synthetic human race, you have to first of all merge gender by first merging ideas of gender. Because you can't just go with there in one leap. You have to merge the idea of gender, what gender is and what gender could be. This is where toxic masculinity comes in, but not only. This is where transgender and fluid gender comes in, but not only. Add to this the chemical influence... And over a period of time, the fusing of gender is increasingly apparent and eventually, through this merging, the disappearance of gender en route to the synthetic human, which plays into the transhuman agenda, which I go into in episode 11. I've said before that there's an agenda to breed weak people. This is playing out through political correctness, where the snowflakes and perpetually offended look to authority to protect them from the next trigger. 
and in episode three i talk about where to an extent that triggered response is coming from especially in the universities in america where political correctness madness is especially prominent nowadays testosterone levels falling also obviously impacts on personality there's the obvious effect of testosterone on emotional responses with extreme masculinity but that energy can be channeled in a positive way not violently but instead a steely determination not to give in to authority and attempts to intimidate in silence and not to take any crap that's the part of masculinity that is really being targeted in terms of men and toxic masculinity we're looking yet again at groupthink we see groupthink with debates on migration for example yes some migrants are genuinely fleeing invasions not wars you need two sides for a war but invasions from the west on manufactured pretext to advance the west's geopolitical agenda foreign policy agenda so it's understandable why those migrants would flee into other parts of the world not least europe not least europe but others are opportunists jumping on the bandwagon a lot of them are single men i've talked about migration before in episodes 12 21 and 45 as well as other episodes Groupthink plays perfectly into political correctness, as I explain in episodes 13 and 15. Groupthink sees everyone the same in each group, when the simple truth is that in any group you'll find nice people, okay people, and psychopaths. Psychopathy is a spectrum, it's not just the crazy, lone nutter murderer. That's one expression of psychopathy, that's the extreme end of the spectrum, but there's the other end of the spectrum, which is no empathy extreme selfishness doing whatever it takes to get your desired end even if it is harmful to others or at the expense of others so there's several traits of psychopathy it's a spectrum it's not just the extreme end and in terms of men like any category of people not all men are the same there's nice men okay one of the boys men and overly masculine men and men likewise women are not all classically feminine there's women who are abusive and psychopathic look at hillary clinton for a start there's women who are violent every group is a spectrum and as such is not really a group at all except as a category except as a a name for a group so people know who you're talking about I said earlier that if we're going to return to sanity, then we need to do it from a position of respect for everyone, to be who they are, think and express that freely, regardless of their label. Groupthink only works if people are label-obsessed, and as such, see everything from a label-obsessed perspective. So, in other words, their self-identity comes first in judging everything, and other self-identity, others' labels, comes first in judging everyone else instead of looking at situations and people on their merit. Not every situation or person or category of people will be the same. And realizing that is seeing the shades of gray and the truth is in the shades of gray. Political correctness and generation snowflake. Dwayne The Rock Johnson hits out at snowflake subject looking for a reason to be offended. This is in The Independent. Dwayne The Rock Johnson has criticised the snowflake generation for looking for reasons to be offended. While praising the current climate for allowing people to be who they want to be, the 46-year-old actor said a certain sector of society is actually putting us backwards. 
I don't have to agree with what somebody thinks who they vote for, what they voted for, what they think, but I will back their right to say or believe it. That's democracy. Well, that's a basic tenet of freedom. The article goes on. He says, so many good people fought for freedom and equality, but this generation are looking for a reason to be offended. If you are not agreeing with them, then they are offended, and that is not what so many great men and women fought for. He added, we thankfully now live in a world that has progressed over the last 30 or 40 years. In that area, maybe, not in others. The quote goes on. People can be who they want, be with who they want, and live how they want. That can only be a good thing, but Generation Snowflake, or whatever you want to call them, are actually putting us backwards. The article goes on. There was recently outrage over reports that Johnson was being paid £10 million, $13 million, more than co-star Emily Blunt for Disney's Jungle Cruise. Johnson's frequent co-star Kevin Hart has also been criticised online recently over homophobic tweets dating back almost a decade. Hart later stepped down as host of the Oscars. It should be noted that The Rock has said that the interview with him in The Daily Star never took place. This is from an article in The Guardian. The Rock says Daily Star fabricated snowflake criticism. The Rock has claimed the Daily Star fabricated a front page story in which the film star appeared to criticise millennials as snowflakes. The story, which appeared on Friday's front page under the headline The Rock Smacks Down Snowflakes and was billed as an exclusive, was picked up by news outlets around the world. The Daily Star piece implied the film star was offended by various incidents in the UK, such as the University of Manchester Student Union discouraging students from clapping in meetings, and claims that a bakery had renamed gingerbread men gingerbread people. The star, which used the piece to assert that the UK is mourning the death of comedy due to humorless crowds demanding no risky jokes, also said Johnson believed whining snowflakes. Dwayne Johnson, a former wrestler who has become one of the world's biggest film stars, used an Instagram video to insist the quotes were fake. The interview never took place, never happened, never said any of those words, completely untrue, 100% fabricated. I was quite baffled when I woke up this morning, he said. You know it's not a real Dwayne Johnson interview if I'm insulting a group, a generation or anyone, because that's not me. The Daily Star has yet to comment on whether the interview was fabricated, but has now taken it offline. Well, there's a clue. Staff at the newspaper suggested this supposed interview was provided to the Daily Star by a freelance journalist and then written up by the staff reporter whose byline appeared on the piece. The unnamed freelance reporter is thought to be abroad and not responding to messages. Well, I hope the interview never took place, because if it did, then that would mean that he's backtracking, which is the worst thing. Whoever said or wrote what's said in the article is correct, whether it was Dwayne Johnson or the person who wrote the article. The snowflakes don't debate. Those who are confident of their view don't run away from a debate and they don't seek to censor. They're confident to have their view challenged because they feel it will stand up to scrutiny. They feel it will stand up to that challenge. If you've done research, which is a novel concept for the PC mob, I know, but if you do, then you know what the facts are. So it doesn't matter if others are opposing views because it doesn't threaten what you know to be true. If you're a transgender advocate of the PC mob and your opinion is that men and women are not biologically different. Well, that's a scientifically unfounded argument. And obviously, you're not going to win that debate, because they quite obviously are different. So you don't have the debate, you just seek to censor. If you can't win the debate, because your arguments are so ridiculous, then the only option you've got left is to censor. Which is interesting, really, because it means that the PC mob must know, even if they don't want to admit it, even to themselves, they must know, at least subconsciously, that their arguments are ridiculous. Otherwise, why wouldn't they ha debate them? But yet they get offended when people air an opposite view. It's very interesting. It's a very interesting mindset.
constantly announcing that you are offended is a very self-centric mentality. Always drawing attention to yourself just so everyone knows you're offended. It's attention-seeking. And it should not be pandered to when people are stating facts and making points that are true and relevant to human society just because of self-indulgence on the part of the perpetually offended. I mean, how are the snowflakes and the perpetually offended ever going to grow if they only ever hear and see what fits with their current perception? You can only grow as a person if you're exposed to challenging information and experience. The snowflake mentality is never going to move us forward. How can it? It just goes round and round in circles on the spot. Progressives and snowflakes are constantly seeking to deplatform speakers. And on Twitter, there's Twitter storms to attack anyone who said anything the PC mob don't like, or any member of the PC mob doesn't like, or anyone buying into the propaganda that the PC mob propagates. Twitter and social media in general are contributing to the post-fact society we now live in, where facts don't matter as much as anyone's opinion or their emotional reaction to an opinion. I talked in episode 45 about how this is contributing to the historical and cultural revision desired by the elite's agenda. The snowflakes and the perpetually offended are looking for an echo chamber. That's what they're looking for, where only perception and experience which suits the snowflake progressive mentality is ever seen heard and experienced and ultimately as i've said before political correctness is not just about what people are allowed to say and hear but what people are allowed to know because political correctness is an elite agenda to stop exposure of elite agendas so the pc mob want an echo chamber which they get largely through twitter and social media twitter the most social media has generated the perception that what people think is all that's important it's the inversion of the fact that facts are all that matters and of course we've got the censorship from social media and this is where hate speech plays its part the concept of hate speech and so the pc mob's looking for an echo chamber where only thought and opinion that suits them is ever seen heard and experienced The perceptions of the PC mob are the perceptions the elite want people to perceive. The PC mob and the fake liberal left of the new establishment and the new tyranny. We're seeing now, more than ever, the addiction to and therefore the proliferation of labels. And from labels comes the subdivision of labels. We see this with religions, where a religion is created and then it breaks into factions and the factions are played off against each other. And the more labels are subdivided, the more opportunity to play sub-labels off against each other and sub-labels against other labels to manufacture divide and rule. If we're going to return to sanity, which is necessary to bring an end to the nonsense we face, then we need to do it from a position of respect for everyone to be who they are and think and express that freely regardless of their label, whether it be race, religion, skin colour, culture, class, etc., and come together behind what all of us are facing and will face unless we come together, which is the nightmare world of the elite's agenda. And the final subject this week is the welfare system and society. This is in the mirror. 
Tor is warned over Universal Credit that I, Daniel Blake film is becoming reality. Tory ministers have been told I, Daniel Blake is becoming reality as MPs heard heartbreaking cases, including a disabled man given a 1p Universal Credit payment. The film was raised in the House of Commons today after ministers prepared for another delay to 6-in-1 benefit Universal Credit. I've talked about Universal Credit in episode 22. The article goes on. Labour backbencher Luke Pollard told the Commons on December the 12th Neil Wright from Plymouth, who is disabled, received 1p to live on a universal credit payment. He is not able to claim another payment until January 14th. He said he had just 77p to live on at Christmas. Dad of six, Mr Wright's plight was highlighted by the Mirror last week and Mr Pollard warned the benefit shake-up was causing misery and poverty to far too many people. Former taxi driver Mr Wright told Plymouth Live he was baffled when he received a 1p universal credit payment into his bank account, but the Department for Work and Pensions insisted the 1p sum was not the only benefits payment Mr Wright received. He had also received £164 of employment and support allowance and had universal credit paid for his rent directly to his landlord. A DWP spokeswoman said Mr Wright has received his full employment support allowance benefit entitlement. In addition, his rent has been paid directly to his landlord from his universal credit. Confronted in the Commons, Work and Pensions Secretary Amber Rudd placed to investigate, adding she was sorry to hear of the case. She told MPs, I'm sorry to hear of the particular situation. Of course, he must write to me and I will take a careful look. It came as Labour stepped up its campaign to halt the universal credit rollout after ministers confirmed the latest delay to the flagship welfare shakeup. New DWP Chief Amber Rudd shelved a looming Commons bill on transferring 3 million existing benefit claimants onto the new all-in-one payment. Instead, she plans to seek approval to move just 10,000 claimants onto universal credit to monitor the way the system works. A vote on the 3 million would only be held after that. Labour's Rupert Huck pressed the case of a constituent Paulette Reed and compared the situation with that of Daniel Blake, the character in Ken Loach's grim 2016 film. It tells the story of a 59-year-old widow carpenter who must rely on welfare after a heart attack leaves them unable to work. Last month, the Mirror reported Paulette's fears she would be left with £10 for the month after a universal credit payment did not arrive when she thought it would. She received the money on Christmas Eve, giving her more than £10, but just in the nick of time. Speaking at Commons Questions, her MP, Miss Huck, said no one else should suffer the indignity Miss Reed had suffered. She told MPs, we're told everyone gets an advance. She was told to go to a food bank. I talk about food banks in episode 28. The quote goes on. How can this be happening in the fifth richest country on earth now? It seems that I, Daniel Blake, is becoming reality in Ealing, Queen of the Suburbs. Welfare Minister Justin Tomlinson replied, I'm very sorry to hear about that case because she should have had access to an advance payment. If she was down to her last £10, it should have been made available that day. If she would write to me with all the details, we'll look at that very specific case to see what went wrong. A DWP spokesman said at the time of Paul Lett's story last month, same-day advances worth up to 100% of a universal credit award are available on day one, so no one should be without money. And there's another article here, a review of I, Daniel Blake from October 2016. This is in The Guardian. I, Daniel Blake, a battle cry for the dispossessed. Ken Loach crafts a Cathy come home for the 21st century, the raw anger of which resonates long after you leave the cinema. Ken Loach's latest Palm d'Or winner, his second after 2006, is The Wind That Shakes the Barley, packs a hefty punch, both personal and political. On one level, it is a polemical indictment of a faceless benefits bureaucracy that strips claimants of their humanity by reducing them to mere numbers. Neoliberal 1984 meets uncaring capitalist Caps 22. On another, it is a celebration of the decency and kinship of extraordinary people who look out for each other when the state abandons its duty of care. 
For all its raw anger at the impersonal mistreatment of a single mother and an ailing widower in depressed but resilient Newcastle, Paul Laverty's brilliantly insightful script finds much that is moving and often surprisingly funny in the unbreakable social bonds of so-called broken Britain. Blessed with exceptional lead performances from Dave Johns and Hayley Squires, Loach crafts a gut-wrenching tragicomic drama about a monumental farce that blends the timeless humanity of the Darden brothers' finest works with the contemporary urgency of Loach's own 1966 masterpiece, Cathy Come Home. We open with the sound of 59-year-old Geordie Joyner, Daniel Blake, stand-up comic Johns, answering automaton-like questions from a healthcare professional. Having suffered a heart attack at work, Daniel has been instructed by doctors to rest yet since he is able to walk 50 meters and raise either arm as if to put something in your top pocket he is deemed ineligible for employment and support allowance scoring a meaningless 12 points rather than a requisite 15. instead he must apply for job seekers allowance and perform the sisyphian tasks of attending cv workshops and pounding the pavements in search of non-existent jobs that he can't take anyway Meanwhile, Squires' mother of two, Katie, is similarly being given the runaround, rehoused hundreds of miles from her friends and family in London after spending two years in a hostel. I'll make this a home if it's the last thing I do, she tells Daniel, who takes her under his wing, fixing up her flat and impressed by her resolve to go back to the books with the open university. Both are doing all they can to make the best of a bleak situation, retaining their hope and dignity in the face of insurmountable odds. Yet both are falling through the cracks of a cruel system that pushes those caught up in its cogs to breaking point. Where digital by default is the mantra of this impersonal new world, to which Carpenter and Daniel pointedly replies, Yeah, well I'm pencil by default. Scenes of Blake struggling with a computer cursor, fucking up name for it. That's a quote from the film. Raise a wry chuckle, but there's real outrage at the way this obligatory online form filling has effectively written people like him out of existence. Yet still Daniel supports and is supported by those around him. From Kima Sikazwe's Street Smart China, a neighbour who is forging entrepreneurial links online. The internet may alienate Daniel, but it also unites young workers of the world. To Katie's kids, Daisy and Dylan, the latter coach from habitual isolation. No one listens to him, so why should he listen to them? That's another quote from the film. By the hands-on magic of woodwork. Having lost a wife who loved hearing sailing by, the theme for Radio 4 shipping forecast and whose mind was like the ocean, Daniel carves beautiful fish mobiles that turn the kids' rooms into an aquatic playground, meanwhile their mother is gradually going under. A scene in a food bank in which the starving Katie on the verge of collapse finds herself grasping a meagre tin of beans is one of the most profoundly moving film sequences I have ever seen. Shot at a respectful distance by cinematographer Robbie Ryan, the scene displays both an exquisite empathy for Katie's trembling plight and a pure rage that anyone should be reduced to such humiliation. Having seen I, Daniel Blake twice, I have both times been left a shivering wreck by this sequence, awash with tears aghast with anger, overwhelmed by the sheer force of its all but silent scream. They'll fuck you around, China tells Daniel. Make it as miserable as possible, that's the plan. For Loach and Laverty, this is the dark heart of their drama, the use of what Loach calls the intentional inefficiency of bureaucracy as a political weapon, a way of intimidating people in a manner that is anything but accidental. When you lose your self-respect, you're done for, says Daniel, whose act of graffiti defiance becomes an I'm Spartacus battle cry that resonates far beyond the confines of the movie theatre. Expect to see it spray painted on the walls of a job centre near you soon. Well, my view of the film is that I, Daniel Blake, is poignant, searingly real and holds a mirror up to modern society's failings to help those most in need. The film does a brilliant job of portraying the computer mind of job centre staff. 
I talked earlier about body being a computer, and computer software has a cycle where the software runs the same every time. That's what we're seeing with the job center staff, the software cycle mind, where they cannot think outside of the usual process and protocol. A phrase I've heard before is the rule book mind, and that sums it up. In the film, Daniel Blake is trying to communicate with them by just talking to them as people normally converse, and they keep asking him to just answer the questions. In other words, don't deviate from the software cycle process because they can't deal with anything else. They literally are robots performing to program. When Daniel Blake and Katie are trying to talk to the staff, they only reply with software responses. Now, of course, this won't be the case with all job centre staff, but it is for some of them. When there was ever any help given in the job centre, it was always people helping people, not staff helping people. And when one member of staff did try to help beyond the official protocol, they were called into the office for a, a quiet word, shall we say. Because there's a protocol and they're not allowed to deviate from the protocol. Most of the time they don't because they have the software in mind. They're only capable of perceiving through the left side of the brain. The left side of the brain only perceives structure, order, protocol, process, routine. In other words, an ongoing repeating cycle like software. The left brain cannot perceive anything on its merit. And that's why they don't actually listen to the people trying to converse with them in the job center because they can only perceive from the left brain perspective. The brain is a muscle. The more you use it in a certain way, the more you perceive from that perspective. This is the real reason why in school, left brain subjects are given far more prevalence than right brain subjects, which are often cut back because it's about stimulating the left brain all the way through the formative years of the child. The teachers won't know this, of course, but that's what it's about ultimately. I talk about education in episodes 5, 15, and 21. Of course, there will be people who don't deserve benefits and are exploiting the welfare system and don't even do any creative endeavors or anything active. They're just lazy, and others who are just playing the system. And that's why there's a process in place to ensure that these people don't exploit the system and only people who need benefits get them. It doesn't work because there are people playing the system and getting benefits they don't need, but that's why the process exists. However, that doesn't mean that people have to be treated like a number rather than a person, and it doesn't mean that staff with a software mind have to be recruited to the positions of job centre staff and other similar positions. People can still be conversed with like a human while keeping to the process. Also, job centre staff will say they're only acting according to their training and according to government policy. So the decisions they make and actions they take are not ultimately their decision. And that's a fair point. It's true. But there's a reason why they're trained like that. There's a reason why the government policy is what it is. And it ain't about what's best for the people. And the person or people training the job centre staff won't know either. Society is intricately compartmentalised. Where people only know what they need to know to make their contribution to advancing the elite's agenda without them even realising there is an agenda, let alone their part in it. One thing people need to realise is that this situation of people struggling financially and the struggles people are facing with the welfare state is not happening by accident or ignorance or incompetence from government. It's happening because it's all part of the agenda to create the Hunger Games society structure I talk about considerably in episode 4. I've talked about the money system in episodes 5 and 23. The confidence trick we call the money system. Money obviously dictates choice and opportunity. People say the government needs to wake up to the struggles faced by working class people. 
Well, there will be a lot of people in government who won't know that society is directed according to an agenda. The average MP won't know, but ultimately they already know. And that's why working class people are facing struggles in the first place. If this film is a reminder and or visual representation of anything, it's that, as I keep saying, society is agenda-driven, not people-driven. We live in a psychopathic society because its direction is dictated according to a psychopathic agenda, planned long ago by psychopathic people. And this is the elite, the less than 1%, who own the global banking system for a start and could end world poverty in a day if they wanted. But they don't, for reasons I explain in episode 4 and other reasons as well. In the film, the theme of computerization of the job application process is made apparent, and this is happening, I suggest, to phase out the elderly, those that Henry Kissinger once called useless eaters. Kissinger is now 95. These elites live so long because they have access to healing and medicine denied the population, the reason for which is again explained in episode 4, as well as other ways that they keep themselves alive for so long. Another aspect of this is what's known as future shock, which is defined as a state of distress or disorientation due to rapid social or technological change. And basically the elderly, or some anyway, just see things changing too much, too fast, that they just give up and just wait to die. It's a mind game. Speaking of society being agenda-driven, I've talked before about a guy called Dr. Richard Day. I feature him throughout episode 18, and... He made predictions, which it would seem were not so much predictions as knowledge of the agenda. I've talked about certain things he said before, and relevant to what I'm talking about now, he said in 1969, because this agenda is long planned, as I said earlier, he said in 1969 about the elderly, everybody has a right to live only so long. The old are no longer useful. They have become a burden. You should be ready to accept death. Most people are. This is... The mentality of the elite. The quote goes on. After you're no longer productive, working and contributing, then you should be ready to step aside for the next generation. Some things that would help people realise they had lived long enough. He mentioned several of these. I don't remember them all. Here are a few. Use of very pale printing ink on forms that people were necessary to fill out so that older people wouldn't be able to read the pale ink as easily and would need to go to younger people for help. Well... There's another example that I would add, which is when you buy a product from a store and it's hard to open it or it's wrapped up in a way that it's hard to open it. Someone young could open it easily, or fairly easily, but the older you are, the harder it is to open it. The quote goes on, automobile traffic patterns, there would be more high-speed traffic lanes. Traffic patterns that older people with their slower reflexes would have trouble dealing with and thus lose some of their independence. A big item was elaborated at some length was that the cost of medical care would be made burdensomely high. Medical care would be connected very closely with one's work but would also be made very very high in cost so that it would simply be unavailable to people beyond a certain time. And unless they had a remarkably rich supporting family they would just have to do without care. We're seeing now a war on the elderly in various ways and he said about constant change nothing is permanent streets will be rerouted renamed 
Among other things, this would contribute to older people feeling that it was time to move on. They feel they couldn't even keep up with the changes in areas that were once familiar. Buildings will be allowed to stand empty and deteriorate, and streets will be allowed to deteriorate in certain localities. The purpose of this was to provide the jungle, the depressed atmosphere for the unfit. And when you look at the film, as I said, you've got the theme of computerization of the job application process, which, which again is phasing out the elderly. We're seeing with the cold, officious, authoritarian nature of the job centre staff and the job centre and welfare system, the emergence of the dictatorship I've been talking and writing about for 11 years now. Universal job match is mentioned in the film and that is a means of keeping track of the time spent by the benefit claimant actually looking for work or supposedly looking for work. And on one level it might seem to be a good thing but it's only one level of the state monitoring people's lives. We've got now social media being monitored by the state, by the job centre, by employers. This is to create intimidation and alteration of online activity. This was brilliantly portrayed in an episode of Electric Dreams called Kill All Others, where people were constantly monitored and their opinions can get them into trouble. This is where we're going with political correctness. If we allow it, and we don't stand up against it, and speak up against it. This is where we're going with all this stuff about hate speech and social media. The social media giants now have the greatest concentration of surveillance and censorship power the world has ever seen. I've talked about the ways that the social media giants are censoring in episode 27. At one point, Daniel Blake gets arrested for spray painting on the walls that he demands his appeal against the decision on his benefits. This is where many people are now, frustrated about not being listened to by authority. This has led to populism, where political candidates perceive to be more aligned with the political concerns of the people. Not that all of them are, by the way. See success in elections because people are basically sick and tired of not being listened to and sick and tired of the old politics. This is what's called the Yellow Vest Movement in France, the Gilets Jaunes, which I talk about in the previous episode. The arrest scene was symbolic in another way as well. Daniel Blake was trying to make his voice heard and there were many people cheering and in support of him. And then the job centre staff come out and see the writing on the wall. Very appropriate symbolism. And the police are called. And the police drag him away and he gets a caution. The police were not supporting and helping Daniel Blake. They were supporting the representatives of the state. Being representatives of the state themselves. And this is a point I've made before. People within law enforcement and the administrative positions within society. Bringing in the global agenda. Administering it into place without realising that there is an agenda. Even. Have children and grandchildren. They're enforcing and administering every day the very agenda their own families will be subjected to and the very world they'll have to live in that this global agenda demands. Those who have jobs within those positions need to consider that and whether they want to continue playing a part in that. If any change is going to happen, then it's going to come from the people, not authority, not government, the people. Now, people might prefer to ignore that and continue to look at government and political candidates to solve the problem, and they have a right to make that choice, but... They'll go on doing that until the society we live in makes the society of Daniel Blake look like a walk in the park by comparison. We have to make the difference. There's billions of people being manipulated and controlled into the world of the... When you look at the life of the characters in the film, you have to ask the question, is that all life really is? Are we not capable of more than that? I saw a picture online once, I'll link to it when I upload the episode, in the description of the episode. 
it featured four different corporate logos and the logos had been altered to fit one word on each logo. And the words were, work, buy, consume, die. And that's what life, with life in inverted commas, is for many people. The system is not designed as it's designed because it has to be this way. It's designed as it is to control and manipulate the elite's agenda into being. When in truth, and this is a shift in the way that society is run from the way portrayed in the film to the way it should be, which is, in truth, the system should fit us. We should not have to fit the system. That's how it should be. In Daniel Blake's eulogy, which was intended to be his appeal statement, Daniel Blake talks about how he was not treated as a human being. And that's how those who really run the world see the global population, which is cattle to them, just lumps of meat with easily manipulatable brains to be used and abused as necessary. Useless eaters, as Henry Kissinger said. If any change is going to happen, then it's going to come from the people. Not authority, not government, the people. Now, people might prefer to ignore that and continue to look at government and political candidates to solve the problem. And that's a choice. That's a choice they can make, but they'll go on doing that until the society we live in makes the society of Daniel Blake look like a walk in the park by comparison. We have to make the difference. There's billions of people being manipulated and controlled into the world of the elite's agenda. There's a tiny number, ratio-wise, actually knowingly behind the manipulation of society into the very world I'm describing now and have been since pay-per-view began. The world of their agenda. So there's an obvious solution, a peaceful, non-violent solution. But it depends on people coming together and putting aside the labels which divide and rule us of gender, religion, political views, income bracket etc and realizing society is being driven in a direction intended to affect all of us and if we don't then divide and rule will only take us in one direction the world of the elite's agenda but if we do we can make this world the place it should be and far quicker than anyone can imagine there's a point that needs making though that comes from this understanding there's a moment towards the end of the film where daniel blake is waiting in the job center for his appeal and he looks at the people who will hear his case and he says my life is in their hands and it can look like that from one perspective and people believe that their lives are in authority's hands the characters in the film believed they had to please some system software mind sitting behind a desk for whom an original thought is like a foreign language just to survive but the truth is our lives are in our hands the power authority has over us is the power we give to authority if we take it back authority has no power by default People have far more creativity to make their own life than they think. How many could start their own business? How many people now are online content creators and make money from it? I'm an online content creator with this podcast. I didn't really make money from it, but that might change in 2019. But many more people can make their own life if they just believe they can. I don't mean to sound like a simplistic motivational speaker. I'm not coming from that angle. I'm just making the point that our lives are in our hands and the only time they're not is when we give our power away to authority. Because we believe authority has power. We take it back, we control our own lives again. It's just a choice and it's down to us to make it. It always has been and always will be. I'm going to finish this episode with a quote which relates to this segment. And it's by Oscar Wilde. He said, To live is the rarest thing in the world. Most people exist, that is all. 
but it doesn't have to be that way. So that's it for this week. That's the news, that's the context and connections, that's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.